0: Great to be with you if you're online with us right now. And uh, it's quite amazing, isn't it? We, we might be jumping in on your commute or as you're lying in the garden this week. That's one of the great things about having uh, what we share on a Sunday out there uh, online. And um, I just want to encourage you, if you're not able to be here some weeks, keep up um, with the series. We're working through a series Right at the moment, uh, Christchurch Escape, which is possibly about the least inspiring title we've ever had, um, but it's great because it gives us an opportunity to focus just a little bit on how we felt the gospel uh, has shaped the life of the church here in Christchurch, and um, when when we well when I shared the the journey of the the series, and we were, we were sharing what we were each going to do. Um, and, and I got this afternoon, there was one text which I just so wanted to go to because it has it's had a massive impact uh, on me over the past, well, 2003, I guess, was the beginning of a journey, well, it was the beginning of ministry. And, and this text for me has been incredibly important. Probably one of my favorite texts in the Bible, Um, And maybe what we can share this afternoon will give a little bit of an insight on why we are what we are. And hopefully we can see that the Gospel shapes our journey. Let's pray before we do, shall we? Father, we come before You and we acknowledge that when we turn to Your Word and then when we speak about Your Word, there is always the challenge that we use human perspectives when we come to the holy written word of God. And so we pray that as we spend this time together, or it may be if we're listening or watching later on, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would use this time to illuminate your living word in our hearts so that we might be encouraged by the explanation, and we might not be distracted by the explanation either. We believe that when the Word and the Holy Spirit combine, that our hearts can be changed. We don't believe that we can be changed without that divine intervention, and so we pray that that might be our experience in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a word which has, uh, fairly recently over the past, probably about the past four or five years, has exploded onto our cultural awareness. It's the word woke. It's become part of our common language. And it's actually turned uh, from being a a recognized perspective or mindset to being a term of Well, it's a derogatory term. It's a way in which we might kind of ridicule somebody. You're just too woke. But it's got a fascinating background. Firstly, what does it it actually mean? What's the heart of it? Let me read you the dictionary description. Aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues especially issues of racial and social justice. That's a really powerful statement. To be actively attentive to issues of racial and social justice. The word actually comes, we think, possibly, from a speech by Martin Luther King, where he used the word awake. And the word awake that he used in one of his speeches became a foundation through the civil rights movement to being woke. And then it kind of disappeared. I don't know whether it disappeared, it disappeared because we had the false illusion that we had solved all of those social issues. And history tells us that we never solved those kind of issues. They rear their heads again, and so it exploded back onto the scene. But Ash worked out a whole set of words and the word awake appeared in our list. What does it mean for us, Christchurch, to think about the idea of being awake? For me, it's, it's definitely the description that we've seen. Being tent- a, attentive, deliberately attentive to issues of racial and social justice. But for me it goes a little bit broader. It's the idea of being awake to the world that we live in today. Aware of the world as it is. Not necessarily the world that we would want, nor the world that it was, nor even the world that it will be, but the world as it is and having an absolute conviction and belief that the message of the Bible, the message of the Gospel, will always have impact, relevance, and a power to speak into the context and the culture as it is. And as soon as we speak about culture, we know straight away we've got all sorts of layers of culture within our own cultural dynamic, and across the world, there are different cultures in existence right at this point in time. But here's something unique, I believe, about the gospel, and it's this. That no matter where we place the message of the gospel, no matter what context that word, that gospel comes into, either alongside or against, it will always do two things. It will always challenge and confront certain aspects of the culture. And it will always support certain aspects of the culture. Think about those two things, those two kind of strings on the kite of the Gospel. uh, And let's think about how it works out through this particular text. How do we think about the idea of being awake here in Christchurch? And more importantly, how does this a particular text from two thousand years ago, speak today. The first thing I would say is this the power of the gospel has been and will be the power to change the world. It has been and will, will be the power to change the world. The explosion of the gospel into the world in which it first found its place, in the time of Paul, the post the post uh, t- the time immediately post Jesus Christ, as it's exploding across the ancient world, we see that it made an incredible, powerful, world changing impact. Dramatic world changing impact. And yet, we would also see, and it seems to me consistently, that the way the Gospel is most powerful is when it speaks with a still, small voice. And what a contrast. In fact, Paul speaks very clearly in Corinthians about the idea that the Gospel comes in weakness, in fragility. And yet at the same time, and paradoxically, has this ability to crash into the world and make dramatic changes. What else is there in this world which is able to carry through a world-changing impact with that kind of paradox? It comes with weakness, with brokenness, with persecution, with opposition. And yet at the same time, it creates change. One of the things that I find remarkable looking back through history is the time and time and time again when we see the Gospel is being persecuted, we see that uh, following that persecution, we then see great Gospel growth. In fact, the church grows during the persecution. We saw it in... The communist countries behind the Iron Curtain. We saw it in China behind the Bamboo Curtain. We see it time and time again now in the Middle East. We, again and again we see this remarkable paradox which we have to confront as a human race, that this message of the Bible comes with weakness and a still small book voice, yet crum- creates dramatic change the early church staying in the city when plague struck to care for those who were sick made a dramatic impact the saving of newborns who were exposed as it was described left out to die because they were not wanted particularly young girls Infanticide was was a, a common Roman trait. What changed it? The church breaking in and taking in those tiny babies and nursing them and seeing them thrive and live. The history of the opposition to slavery. The relief of those with severe and profound mental health issues one of the things that I did a few years ago was really dug deep into the history of how mental health has been thought about down through the past 500 years. And what's remarkable is the way in which that kind of talking therapeutic intervention came from where? From Christians. Who were looking at the way people were treated in their anguish and recognizing that there had to be a different way. attentive to racial and social justice has been a mark of the church down through the centuries and yet and here's the here's the tragic paradox and if we have something that we need to be aware of today it's this at the same time the church has weaponized the bible at times to oppose those very changes. Isn't it, isn't it tragic <laughs> that at the same time as progress, Gospel impact, the still small voice of racial and social change, we also see the influence of power and the desire not to lose power and the weaponizing of the Bible to block that very change. Can Paul speak to us from Athens? Well, let's have a look at our text. The first thing that we see, I think, and I'm going to propose to you from this text, is that the Gospel speaks into today's culture. Let's open up the text in verse 16. We read this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Doesn't seem much that, does it? (laughs) It is incredible, actually. In fact, the first... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The first eight verses make it remarkable. Paul was in Athens. Look around the world today. Where are the cultural hotspots, would you say? What, where are the places in the world that are making the kind of changes, world-shaking changes? We could reel them off. London is one. New York, some would say. Tokyo would be another one, maybe. Silicon Valley, even though it's not a city, would definitely be one. We can look around the world and we can see, and there has always been this fascinating dimension where certain locations carry profound and dramatic power over the whole of the world. Athens was right at the very heart of that. In fact, what came out of Athens affects us today. It affected the Romans of Paul's time, even though it was the power of the Greek Empire it was centuries before. If you go as if you are fortunate enough to go to Athens, you can see the Acropolis. You see the the great uh, columns there and the architecture. Go to Rome. Centuries later, what do you see? You see the same repeated architecture. You see, the the impact and the power of Athens was incredible in its day. It was the cultural hotspot. If you want to change the way we think, if you want to change the way the world thinks, in the day of Paul, you go to Athens. Because that was where it was at. That's when new thought came out. That's when new ideas came out. And Paul, I find this remarkable, Paul is there in Athens. In that center. What's he talking about? He's talking about a message about a man from Nazareth called Jesus, who came in the line of the whole of the Old Testament, who died, who rose again and returned to heaven, who proved Himself to be the Christ through that resurrection, and He is bringing an idea to that cultural hotspot which is connected to a millennia-old religious idea. Here we are today, 21st century West Yorkshire, we are light-years away, aren't we, from the ideas of Athens? We think it's... You know, we just imagine what it must have been like in the marketplace. There was hustle and bustle, there was zero mobile phones, there was zero cars, uh, there wasn't any bikes, there was hand carts, there was people yelling, people shouting, there was the bustle of the marketplace that is just so different from our world today. And yet Paul was bringing a message which was founded on a nomadic people who lived in a desert, who were just as far culturally away from the Athenians, just as irrelevant, just as insignificant as we tend to think of the Athenians today. That's where Paul was. And he was saying to those people, this message of this Jesus has an impact for you today. It comes from this great story, this great journey. One of the remarkable things that we see in the way in which the apostles and the disciples or the disciples who go on to be apostles, some of them, in their, in their sharing of the Gospel, we see on the Emmaus Road, again and again we see this. The message of Jesus is tied to the whole of the story of God in the world through the Jewish nation. What does Paul do? He goes and he, de- he, he engages with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, we see in verse 17. He engages in the marketplace. What? How do you engage with a Jew and a God-fearing Greek? You go back through the whole story. Here he is in modern-day Athens, telling them about the story of Jesus and the history of Jesus. And how he's connected to everything that God has been doing. And I'll, I'll, I'm sure that there would be those who would thought, what's this got to do with What's this got to do with us today? Certainly when he goes out into the marketplace, that's what he he experienced. What's, What's this got to do with us today? And yet for Paul, he was utterly convinced, utterly convinced, that the message of Jesus was relevant for the Athenians there and then. At that point. And the same for us today. The message of Jesus is absolutely relevant for the world today. As it is. (laughs) We don't have to change the world back to be a, a first century kind of way of thinking for the message of the Gospel to be relevant. It's relevant now for us today. That's the first thing that we see. The Gospel speaks into today's culture. The second thing we see is this. The problems of life haven't changed. I guess to some extent, that's why the Gospel is relevant to today. Because the problems of life haven't changed. Where do we see this? Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? (laughs) That is just like that's just straight out of the Richard Dawkins playbook. (laughs) What's this rubbish that's being talked about here? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. But look who he's speaking to. Epicureans and Stoics you know, I was flicking through, as you do need to find a few more interesting podga- podcasts to listen to, found an interesting podcast talking about, well, <laughs> this, this makes me look very sad, found a really interesting podcast talking about philosophy, and uh, as I flicked on, this guy was talking about stoicism, thought, oh no, actually now this is interesting. And he's talking about how Stoicism is actually so incredibly relevant to today. And how we've got to embrace some of the Stoical thinking. Stoics said what? What did the Stoics actually say? The rejection of external factors which cause pain and euphoria. In other words, find a balance in life. Don't let the things that are so exciting, overwhelmed, shun the, shun the excitement, but shun the pain as well. Find a find life of now. One of the most famous Stoics was Marcus Aurelius. Caesar. And uh, murdered, not by, not by his son Commodus in the film, but actually murdered by a, another of his, of his team he talked about this living in the present that got me thinking wow stoicism i wonder whether it's wonder whether it's got any of its roots in some of the ideas of mindfulness today so i did a little bit of a dig and of course google just comes exploding out with countless academic papers on how the idea of mindfulness finds its roots in stoical thinking. Isn't that amazing? Epicurious. Epicurean thinking is what? Happiness and pleasure. And the pursuit of personal pleasure as the foundation of happiness. On the other hand, we've got this idea that rather than, rather than shunning all of that kind of fun stuff, I'm going to embrace it. You know, Epicurus would probably write on his Instagram post, I'm living my best life. The issues of today are no different than the issues of the past. Because both of them are trying to do what? They're trying to confront the problem, the challenge of living, the reality of today. That's what they're both doing. And one is coming to the conclusion that when we try to live, when we confront with the world and the reality of life, the best way is to grab hold of pleasure. Fill life with pleasure. Just create this kind of Veneer that everything's okay that will protect you from the pain, and Stoicism comes along and says, if you you know the contrast is too great, you're going to get you're going to get some mountaintop experiences, but then the kind of the valleys are going to just seem so horrific. So find a balance, find somewhere in the middle, and it seems to me that there is an element of truth in both. (laughs) So how are they reconciled? We'll come to that in a minute. But what we can see at least here is that the issues that we face today are no different than the issues that were faced in the past. The third is this. Our strivings for answers take us so close. Our strivings for answers take us so close. One of the features that you find here in Christchurch is that we tend to go on about are cultural artifacts. Those things that we create to create our culture. Music, literature, films, celebrity, social culture. All those things that we, we create that make it the world that we want to live in. We don't always do it well. But the reason that we dig into those very things is this. And it certainly shaped me from this text. What we find is that those things that we we create for ourselves, they, they point us time and time and time again to the Gospel. They get so close... And they don't get quite get there. Or they go so far away that the contrast with the Gospel becomes so stark and clear. That's exactly what Paul does here. He says to the Athenians, you do realize that you get so close, don't you? You get so close, but, but not quite there. Look at verse 27. God did this, talking about the way in which God has shaped humanity. God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He's not far from any one of us. God is not far from when any one of us, Paul says. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. You see the little speech marks around, for in Him we live and move and have our being. We read that and we kind of think, I need to find out where that is in the Old Testament. Because it's so clearly biblical. It's so clear that he's speaking about God. That it must be somewhere and, and search as you will, you will not find it, because it's from Epimenides. It's one of the poets of the world in which Paul lived. "We are his offspring," it was written by another poet called Aratus. What's Paul doing there? He's saying, "Look at the world that you create. Look at the world that you live in. That very world that you create and you live in, you are straining. You are desperate to create. You write stories. You write desires. You write worlds. Which get so close to the Gospel, but not there. That's what Paul is saying. That's what we say. Time and time again, we get so close. So what makes sense of this Gospel? What makes sense of this Gospel is 29-31. to Therefore, since we are God's offspring, Paul says, I know your poets say we're His offspring. Well, we are His offspring, Paul says. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. First thing you Athenians need to understand is you cannot contain and constrain God within a gold, wooden or stone box. An image made by human design and skill. Here's the thing, God overlooked that in the past But now He commands everyone now to repent. Why should we repent? Why should we repent before God? Why should we turn away from the half-hearted cultural artifacts? Why do we even create a gold statue to worship? Because we want to worship something Paul is saying. But we've we're now getting to the point where we've got to turn away from that and we've got to repent. Why? Because He set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. God is going to judge the world. So the idea of being concerned about social and racial justice fits in with the ultimate purpose of God, to bring justice. To bring justice into the world. How is He going to do that? He's going to do that by the One that He has appointed. Who do we know? How can we identify the One that God has appointed? You can identify the One who as God has appointed by the proof that He has given to everyone by raising Him from the dead. There's the proof of the fact that God is going to judge the world. He's raised one person in history from the dead and ascended into heaven so that He can return. Why do we so desperately Want this. Final cultural reference is from J.R.R. Tolkien. His last in the series of three, The Return of the King, was his final book in the trilogy of Lord of the Rings. He was walking along with his very, very good friend, C.S. Lewis who was not a believer at this point. And they were talking about the idea that we create these stories, these ideas of somebody breaking in and saving us. Fairy tales. And Lewis was a thoroughly modern man. And he said, "Yeah, that's all rubbish, isn't it? They're the things that we write to prop us up. And Tolkien said this. He said, but we've written them right the way through the centuries again and again and again and again. We write these stories of redemption. Every culture writes them. Why is that? Lewis said, because we we want to think that things can be put right. And Tolkien apparently said, well, maybe it's because one of those stories is true. Maybe it's because one of those ideas that has been written into our very thread of human existence is actually not a fable, but a reality. And rather than the story of the Gospel reflecting what we need maybe down through the centuries, what we have always done is we have been reflecting what the Gospel is. We reflect what the Gospel is and when we wake up, when we are awake to what we are doing time and time again as human beings, we realize that that very story that we so desperately want The idea that things will be made right, the idea that the conquering king will return with goodness and justice, maybe it's because actually it is true. Apparently, that that conversation was one of the critical turning points in the life of C.S. Lewis who realized that the stories that he had dismissed as mere fables, and these guys were at the absolute worldwide pinnacle of literature. Lewis was a medieval literature scholar of world class renown. And then he realized that the stories that he'd been studying for years and years and years that he thought were fables were reflections of what the world desperately wanted and what the world had in Jesus. What I find utterly remarkable is because of that conversation and the work of the power of the Gospel, C.S. Lewis went on to write some of the most brilliant stories shaped by the Gospel. Deliberately. Why? Because he had become awakened to the way in which the Gospel was relevant to the world that he lived in in that day. My prayer is that we will always be the same.